about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's see if the wand has chosen the wizard. Well, as we've mentioned a couple of times today, is the second Sunday in Advent, that special season of the year when the church, churches, celebrate the coming of Jesus the Christ into the world to be its Lord and Saviour. Now, of course, everybody celebrates at this time of year for a variety of reasons, or at the very least, for the sake of increasing retail spending and the consumption that otherwise drives our economy, but unfortunately destroys our ecology. And the question of spirituality at Christmas time has been an issue for quite a while now, as secularists try and privatise religious experience in the name of clearing a public space for any faith uh, and especially for those without faith to have an equal share in the festivities. But rather than complaining about that, as Christians are tempted to do, I thought I'd try something different to begin our series of Advent sermons. I suggest For this Advent season, we consider the question that you can see on the screen. What kind of God should we believe in if the Christmas story is true? What kind of God should we believe in if the Christmas story is true? That may seem like a strange thing to ask at Christmas time. Isn't there only one God? Do we really get a choice? Despite what the Twitter sphere proclaims, I think most people do believe in some kind of God, even if he is some transcendent presence not easily distinguishable from the universe. For most people, I think, there is a God, or something like it, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on the earth, This God wants people to be decent, compassionate and fair with each other, as taught in the Bible or really most world religions. And the central goal of life in this world is to reach an authentic feeling of equilibrium between 
our ideal selves and, well, what we can manage in the everyday. God should give us the freedom to achieve this equilibrium and, at the same time, do whatever is in his power to help us achieve it. And finally, God should be ready to intervene to ensure that decent people don't suffer needlessly or preferably at all. Now, I'm sure you know at least one person, probably more, who can confidently assert that they don't need any kind of God and that their value system doesn't need God. Even if their value system does look suspiciously like a bespoke version of Christian morality. Nevertheless, if the Christmas stories are true, and I believe they are, they are an account of God's intervention in a series of events that led up to the most crucial point in the history of the universe. More importantly though, and for us tonight, if the Christmas stories are true, then they reveal to us the one true God. And having come to know him better, we'll be in a much better place to rejoice and to give thanks for the wonder that is the coming of the Son of God as the Saviour of the world. So, what kind of God should we believe in if the Christmas stories are true? Now, to answer such a question, Christians need to turn to the Bible. Our Bible reading this evening came from the beginning of John's Gospel. And you may well have felt a bit of a disconnect as it was read, and I started to talk about Christmas. After all, there's no mention of a baby and his mother, no shepherds or wise men, no angels, and not even any lobsters. That's a joke if you're a Love Actually fan. John's Gospel begins in a very different way to the other accounts of Jesus' birth. Rather than a story of a Middle Eastern family struggling to remain faithful in extraordinary circumstances, it begins with some, well, fairly abstract poetry about God and his word, about creation, life and light in the world and all of that affected by darkness. Well, I suggest, I suggest that for the next few weeks, Think of John's Gospel as the special features DVD in the Bible box set. Know what I mean? The special features DVD, it has a lot more uh, information about the movie. and You get to understand what goes on behind the scenes. How the story was developed, how the director translated uh, the story to the screen... Why were particular scenes chosen and put into focus? The characters, the events. And that kind of special insight comes in the special features disc in your box set. Well, John's Gospel begins with the director's unique perspective on the Christmas story. John begins with the God who speaks a personal word, a word of life and a word of light. If we were to ask John, what kind of God should we believe in if the Christmas story is true? 
I think he would answer that the God of Christmas is ultimate, intimate, and consummate. Ultimate, intimate, and consummate. So firstly then, the God of Christmas is ultimate. Now the first thing we notice reading John's Gospel is that it begins at the capital B beginning. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 again, if you've got that on your phone or device or something like that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The God of Christmas is ultimate because He is above and beyond all time and space. In comparison, there is no time like Christmas to remind us what little grasp we have on time and history. You know what I mean? What is it, December already? Where did that year go? What a slim grasp we have over time in our perpetual now. But God is before the beginning of our time, whether it comes in the form of a Big Bang or not. He is the Ancient of Days that Daniel dreamt of. Or as the psalmist said, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the land and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's from Psalm 90 verse 2. The uh, recent advent of the Webb telescope relays to us new and extraordinary images of the vastness of space. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger all the time. Dazzlingly distant galaxies filled with innumerable stars. And yet, as the psalmist marvels, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of His hands. That's Psalm 19, verse 1. And the only thing that's ultimate to God is His Word, who John tells us was in the beginning with God, Because he is God. Before all time and space, God's personal word was with him, distinct from him, yet eternally with him, and his like no word that we might utter. Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, the African philosopher bishop, uh, think Tunisia for World Cup fans. St. Augustine was at pains to point out, reading this passage, that God's word is not a sound made by him that then ceases, but rather the most intimate expression of his spirit in a far more glorious way than you or I might give expression to an idea or a a plan or a desire in our hearts, which even before we give notice to it and long after it, we've spoken it. No, God's word is with him and from him, from everlasting to everlasting. Now, Bible scholars and theologians like me throughout the ages have wondered, where did John get his language for God and his word? Maybe he copied the Hellenistic culture of his time. Hellenistic philosophy spoke of a logos, a word Perhaps John was thinking of the Genesis account at the beginning of the Bible. 
begins in much the same way, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think the latter seems much more likely than the former, especially when we look at verse 3 of John chapter 1. Have a look there. All things were created through him, that is the word, and apart from him, the word, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. Such life, such being that can bring the vastness of the universe into existence from out of nothing, can scarcely be addressed by the work of his hands, by us. Again, Augustine said, when that one God of gods is thought about, after all, even by those people who assume there are other gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and who invoke and worship them, this God, he is thought about in such a way that our thoughts really strive to attain for something that is greater than which anything else can be thought. The God of Christmas is ultimate because he speaks his word to give life to another, a separate other from himself, to us, to our small blue orb, to the star that shone over the place where the child lay and guided the men from the east to his home, to the angels whose heavenly glory terrified the shepherds, to a nervous young man and his teenage bride. These fragments of the Christmas story reveal something of the strange and wonderful nature of the God of Christmas. He is ultimate because he is intimate. The God of Christmas is intimate. The God of Christmas is intimate with all things because all things were made through his word. Look again at verse 3. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. That's what Psalm 33 verse 6 says. It's in the power of his breath, his spirit, that his word comes forth and gives life to everything. But the form and the purpose of everything that's been made belongs to the word through whom it came. Because God's word is so intimately engaged with all things that are not God, it's the word's creative glory that declares, that the heavens declare, as we saw in Psalm 19. The glory of the God who made the heavens and the skies proclaim his name, well, that's the glory of the word. All life glows with the light from his life, from the far-flung galaxies brilliant with stars to the cells knit together in a mother's womb. In your light we see light, says Psalm 36 verse 9. And that light is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Any glory that we might perceive in and of this world comes from him through whom it was created. He is intimately engaged with it. 
Yet this intimacy that God has with the world through his word is a dim reflection of a deeper personal intimacy that lives eternally in the life of God himself. At the very centre of reality is personal intimacy. For the word himself was in the beginning with God and is God. Let's read it again. Look at verse 1 and 2 there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. From everlasting to everlasting, God breathes forth His Word to be the God He wills to be, ultimate in holiness, without comparison, constraint or compulsion. Or as Isaiah said, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? asks the Holy One. And yet, his eternal life is one of an intimacy that is absolute, for he is not God without his word, nor his spirit. Holy, holy, holy. The three dynamically and mutually constituting each other as one, simply without beginning or end. Now, at this point, you may feel a little like John's special features version of the Christmas story, or at least my telling of it, has become a little bit, a little bit too abstract, a bit too much theological geekery, you know, like Lord of the Rings fans who like to sing to each other in Elvish. Be that as it may, at Christmas time, it's this strange and wonderful divine intimacy that opens to us because all things are made through the word and in the spirit. Those profound human intimacies in the one flesh bond of a husband and wife or the delicate connection between a mother and child, they are a refraction of the essential intimacy that is divine life because it's through his word that they are made. Yet even at their best, these everyday moments of wonder, they must take their place behind the glory that is the work of the Spirit, making the home for the Word in the flesh of a virgin. For here, and at long, long last, the child of Eve emerges on the stage of history to crush the serpent's head, as God foretold in the Garden of Eden. The ultimacy of God's intimacy is revealed to his world as he shifts the spectrum of his light so that we can see it. The result is a scene framed in the grittiness of a teenage bride nursing a child in the only space left in the household, the stable, and an audience of sweaty shepherds. This is the consummate grace of God that we should believe in if the Christmas stories are true. So finally, the God of Christmas is consummate. The God of Christmas is consummate in all his dealings with the world that he has made through his word. Consummate is not a word that we hear or use very often, I'll wager. But it describes either a person who does things perfectly 
or the act of bringing something to perfection. And no one does either of those things like God. The consummate righteousness of God is to be true to his word, even as he sends his word into his world. Or as the prophet Isaiah said, some 800 years before the first Christmas, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The consummate wisdom of God reveals the true state of our vulnerability before him. We are that newborn in a mother's arms before God. Yet the consummate mercy of God is to continue to shine his light amidst the darkness of a world that seeks to overshadow it. Look at verse 5 of John chapter 1. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Though the world was made through him and for him, and though our world is vulnerable before him like an infant, it's hardly innocent. But it wasn't the fact that he was born to a single mother amidst the poorest. That was a sign of his consummate compassion. Rather, No sooner did the word appear in his world that his family were forced to flee like refugees from the murderous plots of an illegitimate government. As it has ever done, our world does everything it can to drown out his word. At Christmas time, of course, it could be that annual orgy of materialism and consumption that spreads now from Black Friday to the Boxing Day sales shrouding the celebration of the greatest gift in the weary exchange of store credits until we can't tell the difference between glory and glitter. More generally, our culture seeks to overshadow the intimacy that we so desperately need with him or even each other with a constant demand for unrestrained desire as if being made in the image of God could be reduced to sexual expression. We cannot admit to the shame of ruining his world, the darkness of our greed that leaves the poor without dry ground to stand on, skies choked with the residue of fossil fuels and islands of single-use plastic floating in the oceans. Undaunted and unabashed, we cast shade over his light that brings life with our right to choose whether to let life begin or when to make it end. And yet, and yet, in spite of all this, or even because of it, in the season of Advent we remember that it was out of the consummate love of God for the world that he sent his word to save it. It was the consummate grace of the word to be found in human likeness to see us, to forgive us, and to sacrifice himself for us. So what kind of God should we believe in if the Christmas story is true? Well, with the help of John's special features, I've suggested that the Christian God is ultimate, 
intimate and consummate. There's much more to say from this part of John's Gospel and we'll do that progressively in the next few weeks. We'll dig deeper there. But for now, God is ultimate as the one who creates all things through his word and by his spirit. He doesn't just watch over this world though. He is intimately involved with it and in it when his word makes a home in the body of a young woman. In this way, God is consummate in his dealings with the world shrouded in darkness. He brings to perfection his promise to save, to save us from the darkness that threatens to engulf us, to save us from ourselves and all the little evils we perpetrate on each other. No time like a Christmas family gathering to bring those to light, is there? Ultimately and intimately, he will with consummate grace, save us from the judgment that we deserve. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.